You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. for tuning in to the second episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Previously, in our very first episode, we gave you guys an introduction to the podcast and threw out a few disclaimers and basically shared why we think the Civil War is still worthy of study and attention today. And you also found out which one of us is a Yankee and which one of us hails from south of the Mason-Dixon line. But this week, we'll start in with the real history and whatnot. We're going to start off by tracing how, from colonial times, the issue of slavery played a major part in shaping and defining the political landscape of America. Starting with this episode, we'll show how slavery was at the heart of the political battles and the sectional rift that culminated in secession and the Civil War. We're going to zero in on the issue of slavery since, as Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural address, Everyone back then knew that slavery, quote, was somehow the cause of the war, end quote. And it wasn't only Lincoln who thought the South's peculiar institution was the root cause of the Civil War. And peculiar institution is how slavery was sometimes referred to in a roundabout way, since some people didn't like to actually use the term slavery. Right. But anyway, besides Lincoln's statement on his, in his second inaugural address, there was also Alexander Stevens, the Vice President of the Confederate States of America, who gave a speech in Savannah in March 1861 in which he said that slavery was, quote, the immediate cause of the late rupture and the present revolution, end quote. Stevens went on to say that while the old confederation known as the United States had been founded on the false idea that all men are created equal, the new southern nation, quote, is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests, upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and moral condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based on this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. End quote. So taking our cue from Lincoln and Stevens, we'll go back to the beginning of the story and slowly walk our way forward through American history. Along the way, we'll highlight the political battles that revolved around the issue of slavery, and we'll do that until we eventually reach the start of the Civil War in April 1861.
The jumping off point for our discussion will be an event that happened back in August 1619. That's when a Dutch ship arrived in Virginia with 20 black slaves from Africa, and those slaves were bought by Virginia tobacco farmers. That moment was like a stone thrown into a pond, because just as ripples were spread outward in the water from that spot, so did the consequences of that first consignment of slaves spread outward through American history. Looking back, we can trace the consequences of that moment in 1619. We see it as slavery was left as an unresolved issue when the Constitution was drafted. And then throughout the early national period, the question of slavery's expansion was at the heart of a growing sectional rift between North and South, and there were repeated attempts to compromise on the issue. And then, of course, there was the great and terrible Civil War from 1861 to 1865, followed by the tortured attempt at Reconstruction and the unhappy aftermath of that failed policy, when racial equality was sacrificed on the altar of sectional reunion between North and South. And, in some ways, history is truly where the past and the present meet, since as far as race relations and questions of who is a citizen and who is not, even today we're still dealing with issues that touch upon the consequences of that Dutch ship arriving in Virginia with 20 black slaves. Well, we said we were going to start at the beginning, so let's go back to the colonial period, and we can see that even back then, slavery was already a divisive sectional issue. Because while slavery existed in each of the 13 original American colonies, it never took hold in the North as it did in the South. In the Northern colonies, slavery was never central to the region's economy, whereas in the South, where vast plantations were established, the use of slave, lab slave labor became a central feature of the region's economy. And also in the northern colonies, besides economic reasons why slavery never took hold like it did in the South, but in the North, certain religious groups, such as the Quakers, opposed slavery on moral grounds. But by 1787, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, a sectional rift had definitely already started to appear between North and South. By that time, there was already a noticeable contrast between northern and southern states as far as economies, social structures, and cultural and political values. As Rich just said, as early as the Constitutional Convention in 1787, this sectional rift was apparent and it was already starting to define and shape the American political landscape. In 1787, according to James Madison of Virginia, it had been, quote, pretty well understood that the real difference of interest lay not between large and small, but between northern and southern states. The institution of slavery and its consequences formed the line of discrimination, end quote. And James Wilson, a representative for Pennsylvania to the Continental Congress, hoped a ban on the Atlantic slave trade would, quote, lay the foundation for banishing slavery out of this country. Wilson went on to say that he hoped a ban on the importation of slaves would encourage the southern states to adopt, quote, the same kind, gradual change which was pursued in Pennsylvania, end quote. And the kind, gradual change that Wilson was speaking of there was the gradual emancipation that many northern states carried out during this period. Well, right, but Pierce Butler 
who represented South Carolina at the Constitutional Convention, declared that, quote, the security the southern states want is that their Negroes may not be taken from them, which some gentlemen within or without doors have a very good mind to do, end quote. Since the Founding Fathers brought these competing values and opinions with them to the Constitutional Convention, it's a good thing they recognized the importance of compromise in achieving important goals, like writing of the Constitution, for example. In 1787, the Founding Fathers accomplished something fantastic in writing the Constitution of the United States, but in order to do it, they had to compromise on many issues, such as the structure of the legislature and the extent of its duties on the method by which members of Congress would be elected, and on the powers delegated to each branch of government. And they also compromised on the existence of slavery, and especially the role slavery would play in how states were represented in the lower house of Congress, that is, in the House of Representatives. Since America was supposed to be a land where all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, the framers of the Constitution carefully avoided using the word slave in the document and instead referred to persons bound to servitude. Well, in concessions to the concerns of the slave states, especially South Carolina, the Constitution provided that when such persons bound to servitude escaped to a free state, they were to be returned to the slave state. Congress also would have no power to abolish the importation of slaves from overseas until the year 1808. But when Southern delegates proposed that slaves be counted as part of the population for the doling out of representation in Congress, but not for the purposes of direct taxation, Northern members of the convention protested the obvious contradiction in the Southerners' desire to consider slaves as property in the one instance but then wanting to count them as persons in the other instance. The two sides finally settled on a compromise by which each slave should count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation and taxation. This settlement ended up being a clear victory for the slave states since the federal government never levied a direct tax, and so the three-fifths clause served only to ensure that the slave states were continually overrepresented in Congress and in the Electoral College. To their credit, many of the Founding Fathers were acutely aware of the tension between the issues of liberty and the rights of man and the attempt to justify slavery. As pointed out by Stephen Woodworth in his book, This Great Struggle, America's Civil War, Patrick Henry, who rhetorically asked if even life itself was worth the price of chains of slavery, and answered his own question in the negative with his famous demand for liberty or death, was nevertheless a slaveholder. Would anyone believe that I am master of slaves of my own purchase, he asked in another, less well-known rhetorical question. Yet though he called slavery this abominable practice, he could only express the hope that sometime, somehow, the opportunity would arrive to abolish it. He was not alone in his conflicted state of mind. The prevailing view in the South was that immediate emancipation would turn loose on society an unrestrained racial underclass and spark the onset of a race war. We have the wolf by the ears, Henry's fellow Virginia slaveholder Thomas Jefferson would later remark, and feel the danger of either holding or letting him loose. End quote. 
So although many of the Founding Fathers recognized the contradiction between Republican liberty and slavery, they were willing to compromise on the issue in order to achieve their immediate goal, that of framing a constitution that would be ratified by the individual states. But while they understood the importance of compromise in the short term, many of those leading men also believed incorrectly that in the long term, the practice of slavery in America would eventually wither and die. And to help along that process, in 1787, Thomas Jefferson wrote, and Congress passed, the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787 was meant to restrict slavery to areas where it already existed, since it banned the practice in all of the territory that was to become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And so, west of the Appalachian Mountains, the Ohio River became the acknowledged boundary between slave states and free states. But Jefferson wrote and Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance in the mistaken belief that slavery was already an institution that was in the process of dying out. And they can be forgiven this mistaken belief, since certain agricultural changes and economic developments at that time seemed to indicate that slavery was indeed becoming much less profitable, and so, as a result, the voluntary freeing of slaves in the South would logically eventually take place. But all of that changed in 1793 with a Yankee inventor named Eli Whitney. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1793, Eli Whitney was working as a tutor on a Georgia plantation when he invented a simple machine called a cotton gin that could cheaply and easily separate the seeds of the cotton plant from its white fibers. It's no exaggeration to say that history would turn on the fact that the cotton gin revolutionized the economy of the southern United States. Now, it's important to remember that before cotton can be used for weaving, its white fibers have to be separated from the seeds that cling to it. 
With black seed, long staple cotton, that's a relatively simple process. It can be done just by passing the cotton bowls through a pair of rollers. However, that type of cotton could only be cultivated along a narrow strip of the southern coastline. Another type of cotton, though, could be grown inland across most of the rest of the South. But that cotton, green seed, short staple cotton, wasn't really worth cultivating, since the only way to clean it was by hand. And even with slave labor, that process was so difficult and time-consuming that the profitability of green seed cotton was virtually nil. But that changed in 1793, when a young inventor named Eli Whitney constructed a simple machine called a cotton gin that neatly and easily cleaned green seed short staple cotton. The Massachusetts-born, Yale-educated Whitney had gone south for a teaching job, but when that fell through, he found himself working as a tutor on a plantation in Georgia. The manager of that plantation, Phineas Miller, was another Yale graduate, and he told Whitney that a fortune could be made if only someone would come up with a way to cheaply and easily clean green seed short staple cotton. Miller said that besides the textile mills in the northeast United States, the British, far across the ocean, were starting to build a great textile industry of their own, but their wonderful automated, automated looms needed vast amounts of raw cotton. Once Miller planted the germ of the idea in his mind, Whitney in no time had cobbled together a simple machine with just four parts. And this machine, the cotton gin, was capable of cheaply and easily cleaning green seed short staple cotton. Eli Whitney took out a patent on his invention in 1794 and partnered with Miller to make and service the machines. But by coming up with such a simple device, the young inventor had unknowingly shot himself in the foot. The cotton gin was so simple and easy to construct that planters all across the South either made their own machines or bought cheap imitations of Whitney's original design. And so, by 1797, Eli Whitney and Phineas Miller were out of business. He may not have ended up making any money on his creation, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the cotton gin was one of the most important inventions of the Industrial Revolution. It quite literally revolutionized the southern economy, making possible the profitable cultivation of cotton throughout the deep south and fueling an increased demand for slave labor to harvest the cotton, work the gins, bind the bales, and load them for shipment to textile mills in the north or in Europe. Fast forwarding just a bit, we see that by the mid-19th century, cotton was king in the deep south. In the decades before the Civil War, cotton would be one of the most valuable exports of America and the mainstay of the southern economy. By 1840, the U.S. was producing over 60% of the world's cotton. And just to throw a few more numbers at you, cotton production rose from 2 million pounds in 1791 to a billion, that's billion with a B, a billion pounds in 1860. That's a whole lot of cotton. And so while America's founding generation abolished slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line, south of that line, thanks to Eli Whitney's invention, the spread of cotton as a valuable cash crop meant that slavery, rather than dying out, was instead fixed even more deeply into the South's economy and culture.
So with all of that as background, let's add one more ingredient to the mix, and that's the Louisiana Purchase. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson brokered what's been called the greatest real estate deal in history, and that's because Jefferson struck a deal with Napoleonic France, and in one fell swoop, he added 828,000 square miles of new territory to the United States. This monumental acquisition, known as the Louisiana Purchase, of course, was a steal. The U.S. ended up paying less than three cents an acre for the land. And for that bargain basement price, the Louisiana Purchase lands encompassed all or part of 15 present U.S. states and even two Canadian provinces. And then in 1819, the Missouri Territory petitioned Congress to join the Union as a slave state. This set off alarm bells in the North, since other than Louisiana itself, Missouri was the first territory in the Louisiana Purchase Lands to apply for statehood. Louisiana had entered the Union as a slave state in 1812, but not only did Louisiana lay farther south than any other state at that time, but slavery had existed there under Spanish and French rule before America acquired the territory. So geographically and culturally, it only seemed natural that Louisiana would enter the Union as a slave state. But Missouri was a different matter. There hadn't been any slavery in the land that made up the future territory of Missouri, even when that land was ruled by France and Spain. And Missouri lay directly west of Illinois, where Jefferson's own Northwest Ordinance had banned slavery. So, if admitted as a slave state, Missouri would be the northernmost slave state. So, as Tracy said, in 1819, when the Missouri Territory petitioned Congress to join the Union as a slave state, it set off alarm bells in the North. Everyone realized that if Missouri were admitted as a slave state, it would upset the delicate political balance of power that existed in Congress between slave states and free states. That's because in 1819 there were 11 slave states and 11 free states. The importance of this delicate political balance in 1819 really can't be overstated, since even by that time, the rift between North and South had grown wider as the two sections had steadily diverged from one another in their economies, social structures, and cultural and political values. And while there were certainly several issues and concerns that contributed to the sectional rift, no other single issue in pre-Civil War America contributed so much to the growing divide between North and South as did slavery and the question of its expansion into new territory. And we can start to really see that here in what happens after Missouri applies to join the Union as a slave state. Missouri's petition set off alarm bells in the North because, especially since there had been no slavery in the territory, even under French or Spanish rule, if Missouri was admitted as a slave state, the implication would be that slavery was the natural and normal arrangement in all future American territories. In other words, no matter where the territory lay, north or south, slavery would be allowed there, since the precedent had been set with Missouri that slavery followed the flag. Well, this was exactly the opposite of how some northerners wished their flag and their country to be viewed. And besides, they certainly didn't want to see the political balance of power tip in the slave state's favor. So Missouri's application to join the Union set off a spirited debate in Congress, 
which soon enough turned into a major national crisis. And I think that's where we'll leave things for now, since that seems like the perfect place to start to wrap things up. That means you'll have to tune in next time to find out what Congress decides to do about Missouri. But I'll give you a hint. It involves a compromise. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is the book that won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize in History. It's What Hath God Wrought? The Transformation of America, 1815 to 1848, by Daniel Walker Howe. I think Daniel Walker Howe sounds like a good Civil War name. But anyway, his book is part of the Oxford History of the United States series, and Howe's book takes us from the Battle of New Orleans to the end of the Mexican-American War. Now, I'll admit that What Hath God Wrought is probably for the more serious-minded student of history. So, if you'd rather not jump right into the deep end of the pool with Howe's book, we have a second bonus book recommendation for this episode. Our second recommendation is another Pulitzer Prize-winning history book. In fact, it's also part of the aforementioned The Oxford History of the United States series. It's Battle Cry of Freedom, The Civil War Era by James McPherson. Battle Cry of Freedom is the first, but it certainly won't be the last, of McPherson's books that we recommend on the podcast. Uh, it's a great book. It's a comprehensive narrative of the Civil War era that I think the general reader will find a bit more accessible than Howe's book. So there you go, and you really can't go wrong with either one. You can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.